the perfect way knows no difficulties, except that it refuses to make preference. Only when freed from hate and love, it reveals itself fully and without disguise. The perfect way is only difficult for those who pick and choose. <clears throat> do not like, do not dislike, all will then be clear. There is nothing difficult about the great way, but avoid choosing. <laughs> only when you neither love nor hate does it appear in all clarity. Five, it is not hard to realize your mind which should not be an object of your choice. Throw like and dislike away and you'll be clear about it. The supreme way is not difficult if only you do not pick and choose, neither love nor hate, and you will clearly understand. The best way is not difficult. It only excludes picking and Choosing, once you stop loving and hating, it will enlighten itself. The great way is not difficult, just have no preferences. Cut off all likes and dislikes, and it is clear like space. The great way is effortless for those who live in choiceless awareness. To choose without preference is to be clear. 10. It's not difficult to discover your Buddha mind, but just don't try to search for it. <laughs> Cease accepting and rejecting possible places where you think it can be found and it will appear before you. Thank you. That's it. So what do we make of this? One of the other translations is a, oh, speaking of preferences, right? <laughs> one of the other translations spoke to me more than this one does. But the not being attached to your preferences or aversions, you know. Um, Remember that, that attachment is the cause of suffering. And that every attachment has a shadow side, which is an aversion. I thought about that the other day, that if I'm attached to something, what that probably means is that I don't want the opposite of that thing. So there's there are two faces to an attachment, both the attachment and what you are adverse to. It causes anxiety, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because you want to keep this so that you don't have that. So, a friend of mine who's no longer with us, but he uh, he got his car his side wiped, and he just drove drove it without without a care in the world. Now half of my car is side swiped and half of it is perfect. You know, but it didn't matter to him at all. He had a very deep practice. You know, Nelda, you just mentioned that um, about being attached because um, 
you don't want the opposite. And for me, it's a little different because I'm like, when I've found myself um, being attached to something is because I know this is good. You know, it feels good or I enjoy it. And my mind cannot imagine anything being better. You know, like I cannot like fathom what could be as good as this. You know what I mean? It's like, so I want whatever it is to stay or to last longer, you know? It's not necessarily like the opposite, but if it's bringing me joy, I, you know, I'm like, hey, I like this. I'm having enjoyment. And I cannot imagine, it's like when you're having, when I'm having a really good day, like at a party or even at the beach or hiking. And I'm like, I know it has to come to an end, but I'm like, oh my God, this is so magical, you know? And so I cannot imagine something giving me that same wonder. And yet, you know, when I go hiking again to a new place, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm amazed all over again, you know? And it's like, yo, so that has been my um, quandary. Like, cause I like, you're, you're muted, you're muted. Thank you, Jay. Flint was very helpful to me with that. Um, because don't we all love that expansive connected feeling? And so I said during one inquiry, I have trouble holding on to joy. And he said, we all do. He said, don't hold on to it, let it flow through you. And it sounds like you're doing that, that you're not holding it like an attachment, but that as it flows through you, you are fully experiencing it. And then when it's gone, it's gone. So, yeah. I mean, like it's been a journey to get to here. I mean, and there's still times when, like, even now I have um, a, a friendship that I really need to release it, honestly. But the memory of the past, you know, when it was good, it keeps me, um, keeps me there, even though I know uh, it's no longer feeds me you know it's not a healthy place to be so <laughs> oh Kim was talking. No, you're still muted. All right. This is William Blake. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. It's one of my favorite quotes. And that sounds like what you were saying too, Jay. Mm. It's the idea of not attaching to it, to enjoying it when it's here, right? Yeah. And you know what, too? It's like, 
it's so funny because uh, I tell you, even, you know, I don't know about you guys, you know, like when I would go to someplace, I have this expectation of, oh my God, you know, <laughs> you want it to be, I wanted it to be amazing or I, I want to have a good time. I want to do stuff. And so it's been um, a, like committed practice of not, not holding any expectation and just being present in the moment and seeing what unfolds. You know what I mean? Like, because I have no projection, there's no disappointment or whatever. I'm always um, surprised, you know? You know what I mean? Like, because I'm not focused on anything, I'm just flowing with it. It, it, it It's a, a different um, experience. So, yeah. So I'll just say one more thing, Jay, because you prompted something I was just thinking mm-hmm. of. The doggies and I, they don't know it yet, um, are planning a road trip this summer for about a month where I just get in my car and drive north and try to see as many of those eight to 10 states that I haven't visited yet. And I have no expectation. We're just going to take it a day at a time at whatever pace we can that day, because they're old, I'm old, you know, it's, it's not like I couldn't, I can't drive 20 straight hours anymore, I don't want to. And uh, that sounds like what you're describing. I don't know where we're going. There's not going to be a planned trip, except to hit those as many of the states as we can and leave plenty of time for a relaxed drive back. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. I love that. What what do you make of some of the translations talked about getting rid of love and hate? That was that was uncomfortable for me. Anyone else have a thought about that? That's a preference, like, isn't it? Yeah. I was uh, talking to my food nutritionalist, uh, uh, whatever she is, and uh, today, and and realizing how many foods I didn't like. <laughs> and how many foods you know how few foods i like but then i started making a list and the and they all the like thing appeared was the long list uh, i'm very confused about that the other thing <laughs> that i i heard that i hadn't heard before reading those translations was uh this idea of clarity and then then things will be clear and there were a few of them that that talked about that and you know what would the world look like if things were clear i started thinking about that melin you were gonna say something yeah it looked like if she was gonna say something I, I, no i was going to ask kim again to say the phrase please oh the the, the by william blake that one no the other interpretation about love and hate oh there there were a couple but i'll uh... As you mentioned it, I I thought about it, but in a more deeper way, not love. Well, here's here's one. The perfect way knows no difficulties, except that it refuses to make preference. Only when freed from hate and love, it reveals itself fully and without disguise. Carl, a person Nelda and I took classes with, often would say that uh, similar things about love and hate. 
Only when you neither love nor hate does it appear in all clarity. But I love everything. Okay, another one. Uh, the supreme way is not difficult. It only you do not pick and choose, neither love nor hate, and you will clearly understand. So where one says, Agreed. cut off all likes and dislikes, another says, once you stop loving and hating, it will enlighten itself. So it's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, did you guys see what Nandia put in the chat? Yeah. And, and that's very yeah. good, I think, uh, Nandia. Yeah. That helps. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was going to say, because Nelda said she loves everything. And is that really true, though? Because if you have a prep, you're muted. No. If there's a preference, then it's so, not love of everything. So the and I hope well that this may offend someone. So <laughs> when I when I think about people for me that might be hard to love, I think about our former president and I love him. I don't love what he does. I don't love his ideas, but I love him. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's also a a matter of language. This what what Nandia wrote here is very mm -hmm. useful because in Spanish you don't use love as I love ice cream. You do not say yo amo el helado. You do not mm -hmm. say that. You use love only like to persons or things like that. So in a more deeper way. So I was having issues with that translation about love and hate. And I understand in, in Japan or in the old days, at least, you wouldn't say, I love you. You would say, the moon is beautiful tonight. Get out. That's cool. Or you know, you would make some, some, like, positive nature statement. That sounds romantic and cool, but then it's like, were they, um, how do you call it? Uh, had difficulty expressing emotional things like was it you know what I mean if you have to turn to go ahead Jay when I went when I visited China we went to don't ask me the name of the place okay. area that has the amazing rice fields on the mountains it's also the community of people who wear their hair long 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 and their inheritance you are the more hair you have inherited from your ancestors, the richer you're considered and they wear it all at the same time. And their way of saying, I love you, or I'm attracted to you. And I bought one. It, they have this special ball. It's not round. It's got all these little div. It's just really beautiful with strings and ribbons and so on. And when they toss it back and forth to each other, they're saying, I love you. They don't mm. use the words, I love you. Right. Yeah. Should we I mean, read? Oh, sorry. go on. No, no, I was going to just say, that's the beautiful thing about um, going beyond the country, uh, your residence, you know, to see the world and really experience um, like life in a new way. You know what I mean? Like um, break open the box because I would say you can't think outside the box unless you're exposed to outside the box. So 
Did we re? I hope we re reread the the koan. Did we? No. After the the sit, or why doesn't someone just? Uh, I guess Jay, you're next. No, I read it. Oh, okay. Start. I'm next. The great way is not difficult. Zhao often quoted by the saying by Seng John, the great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. Life with and without your cherished beliefs. Everything is suffering for those who discriminate. Uh, Patanjali. Patanjali. Patanjali, thank you, yes, Patan in yes. the Yoga Sutras. I have four great vows. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm cold, I put on more clothes. When I'm tired, I stretch out and sleep. When it's warm, I find a cool breeze. Vi mm -hmm. by Yun Chudduan. A koan shows you two conditions for your mind, a with and a without condition. This is the natural way to understand things. <laughs> Life is a Botox advertisement in which you show a haggard, care-worn face with wrinkles, and then the improved version, smooth as a baby's backside without wrinkles. A koan uses this natural eagerness to compare things in an interesting way. When you work with the koan, what you are either with or without is your map, your cherished beliefs, <coughs> your stories about how your life should be at the moment in which you find yourself. The with condition is what in an unexaminated exam, uh, sorry. Examined, how would you say? No, uh, unexamined. Unex unexamined way. The with condition is what, in an unexamined way, you believe to be true. Beliefs have consequences. They build their own fictional world. When you believe something, you usually want the world to agree with you, to back up your story. Of course, it rarely does. So your story will come with conflict built into its plotline. In the without condition, you see the world without wanting it to be different from the way it is. The without condition is an act of imagination. You ask yourself, what might the world look like if I loved it as it is, just as it is. Here is a con that shows the power of imagining life when you are not depending on the stories you usually tell yourself. It also can show you what life is like in the without condition when your maps of the world vary from the actual territory of the world. Kim, will you please highlight that sentence? The without are two senses. The without condition it is an act of imagination. You ask yourself, 
What might the world look like if I loved it as it is, just as it is? Thank you. Is that the, your feelings for Donald Trump? That you're loving him just as he is? Yes, but I don't like the things he does. But I love him. He's a creation. Mm -hmm. He's a, he is, the universe called him into existence. And he is as valuable as everything that the universe called into existence right now. Yeah. I'm with you, um, Nelda. I don't, I mean, this like the, the acts that people perform that cause hate and harm and, you know, um, uh, conflict, but I don't hate the individual because I'm always curious because, you know, it's like for that individual, there's a reason behind what they're doing that makes large, complete sense to them. You know, like when I do things that offend people that was not intended, you know, it's like in my understanding, it makes complete sense. And for them, it doesn't. Right. And for me, it comes from my familial and social and all those things it affects what I what it they have affected you know um before without me mindfully thinking about it how I show up in the world and how I act so you know it, it's like when I watch these um like jail inmate programs and you they interview these guys it's like it's so mind-blowing how compassionate and forgiving you can be when you understand the genesis of, you know, the origin story of um, what made them do certain things, you know? I mean, we know that, I know that there are consequences, but then it's like, oh my God, there's so much compassion that wells up with understanding. So why can I invite curiosity into it, you know? So wonder what made you do that? Okay, I think it's Nandia's turn. Okay. The koan. Sajo often quoted this saying by Seng Chan. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. Working with the koan. Everyone knows that some events are just bad and make you sad or angry. And some are good and make you glad. Yet what everyone knows might not be true. For example, there might be a certain coercion to the attitude that weddings must be happy. Funerals have to be sad. It could prevent you from meeting the moment you are in. What if events don't have to be anything other than what they are? What if, oops, children laugh at funerals. Some tears shed by brides are from disappointment rather than joy. Perhaps some grooms offer also cry at weddings, just saying. Being fired or losing someone dearly beloved 
could open an unexpectedly beautiful new life. You might be armored against an unpleasant event that turns out not to be. Instead of wrestling toward what you are convinced ought to be going on, it might be refreshing to approach events without armor, meeting their nakedness with your own nakedness. That might also be a kind approach since it sets up no conflict in your own heart. There is a legend in which the Buddha comes upon the mind of not picking and choosing. On the end, edge of his own profound change of heart, the Buddha meditates all night under a fig tree and an image comes to mind. He remembers that as a child, while his father plowed a field in an annual ceremony, he was left in the shade of a rose apple tree at this moment, the boy had no minders around to distract him. He is under no one's gaze. His father's absorbed in plowing. The air is pleasant, the leaf light green, the shade cool. With nothing on his mind, the child does not want or fear anything. The sun seems to stand still. It is delicious to be alive. He feels a happiness not born of desire. He moves his eyes over the whole field, can find no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict. Everything is sufficient. There's nothing to add, nothing to subtract. And it occurred to him that exploring this approach, which he discovered in childhood, might be the direction in which enlightenment lies. Here, not picking and choosing is something a boy wanders into. It is the natural state of an undisturbed mind. Then the boy notices that thoughts and feelings are always rising and that they are not themselves disturbing. Thoughts and feelings are things in the world as much as flowers and parasols, and he doesn't have to either agree with them or quarrel with them. It's easy not to pick and choose about his own reactions, about his picking and choosing. Well, this part always gets me. Um, you know, it seems to be the most difficult thing in the world. It's not easy, is it? In fact, I was talking to someone this morning and, um, you know, she, she it went back to this idea of trauma and can you choose your reaction to an event? And, you know, we've certainly talked about the fact that, that that's very difficult to do. And it takes practice to rewire that, sometimes a lot of it. 
Oh, so now Nandia is saying it seems other than easy or not easy. It is automatic unless we train diligently. All right, Nandia. And Jay was talking about people in prison, you know, and why do they do the things they do? And um, I wrote a lot to students. At the Austin Zen Center, we were writing to prisoners and encouraging their Buddhist um, growth or whatever. And, um, you know, most of the time, what they did, they did... Um, spontaneously and often you know while they were uh, drinking or doing other drugs mm. so so that would be the opposite of training diligently and acting you know with some forethought who's reading is it my you turn Yes. Everyone knows that Buddhism is not it's about non-attachment. And people might think that's not picking and choosing. That not picking and choosing is about having no preferences. Yet non-attachment might lead to warfare with the part of you that enjoys the world. In this case, non-attachment would be just another tyrannical belief and itself a source of unhappiness. Not picking and choosing could be the opposite of non-attachment. Something more unsettling and demanding. If someone asked you vanilla or chocolate and you noticed that today you would like vanilla and say so, that might not be picking and choosing. If you say, I don't mind, what are you having? Then that could well be picking and choosing. You might be trying to guess what your host wants. You might want vanilla, but be unwilling to reveal yourself by saying so. Well, I would like water, but um, I can hear you when I leave because, it, okay, so I'm not leaving you. I'm just getting water. I discovered something about this gun when my sister called and told me my mother was dying. I got off the plane in August in Launceston, Tasmania, to gusts of wind and cold rain, water laying in sheets on the paddocks. The luggage on the carts was glistening. The hills were as green as in dreams. Merino sheep and green sheds sprouting in, the wool, in their wool. My sister took me straight from the airport to my mom, mother's bedside in the hospice. My mother, the doctor thought, was waiting for me for my arriving, arrival and might not last the night. Dying of what? I asked him. Nothing, everything. He was a doctor who considered life and, ima and imagined that you might not, that you might join him in considering it too. 
He reflected for a moment. There isn't a reason. She's just worn out. My mother was ex extremely wasted. Her hair was baby fine. Bone white and drifted above her skull. Her, her skin had an uncanny translucent relieved by large dark blotches where nurses had tried to find a vein and she had bled under the surface. I held her hand and sat with her. The next morning, she was still alive, so I did the same thing. My sister was negotiating with the nurses about the oxygen levels. This was an intense activity. My father was trying to encourage mom to stay in this world, to eat, for him, for life. May I tempt you with just a spoonful of this custard, Allison? You might get a taste for it. She was heedless, impatient, rude. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you don't care. You've never listened to me, never. Oh, Allison, he said disconsolately. Everyone had something, I'm just reading and reading. Everyone had something to do but me. I began to consider love. Immediately, I noticed that whenever I wanted anyone to be different, the room filled with sorrow and pain. Under that condition, I began to struggle and feel terrible grief. There was nothing wrong with this, really. It was intense and interesting, but my mother didn't seem to need it of me. My father or sister didn't need it either. It also wasn't something I needed. Then for whom did I struggle and feel grief? Wow, that was a great insight. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I've even heard Peg talk about this. You know, we feel ashamed because we're not feeling the what we think is the right thing. Mm. Uh, and it goes back to the ice cream. Go ahead, go on. No, no, it looked like Nelda was going to say something. Oh, sorry. But Nandia made another comment. It seems other than easier, oh, and spontaneous trigger like behavior is also born of trauma. I made that comment a, a long time ago. Um, okay. Just something um, about what we just read. Um, I remember when my mom was dying and she had this sort of slow shutdown of all the different systems in her body. And um, I remember the last time I visited her and it was really, it was very clear that um, she really just had hours left. And so I called my father to, to let him know because he was at that time um, receiving 
like a hospital bed and other things to put in the house so that mm. she could go home from the hospital and be set up in the house. And it was very clear that that wasn't going to ever happen. And I'll never forget what he said. He, I explained the situation to him and I said, you know, I, I think you want to get here as soon as you can. And he said, well, but what can we do now? What, what can they do for her? And he, he just wanted to take all these very drastic uh, measures that would just uh, keep the body uh, functioning on some kind of biological level. And, you know, I just said again, you know, there's, there's nothing that can be done, but it, it felt like we were like talking, we were like on a divided highway. Mm. He was like on one side of the highway and he just couldn't hear that, that that was the only track that he was capable of being on in that time. He, he couldn't take in that she was gonna be gone in a couple hours, so. This reminds me of that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. It's interesting because it also brought up, for me, it brought up my grandmother who had Alzheimer's. And I, I remember um, <laughs> my aunt would be like, would yell at her, you know, like, mind you, my aunt was a nurse and my phone is about to die. Um, my um, aunt was a nurse and who lived in England at the time. We're from Trinidad. So my grandmother is in Trinidad and she retired from her job in order to come take care of my grandmother. And she would yell at her. And I remember what, when, in the, I don't know what came over me, but in, when I would call my grandmother, she's like, oh, you don't love me. You haven't called me, you know. I'm like, mom, I just called you yesterday or last week, you know, and then I don't know what, but I just like, oh yeah, you're right. You know how it is. I just went with it. I didn't even, I stopped fighting it because I understood that her mind was not, you know, in the same place. So when I would go home on vacation and my aunt is like, why are you doing that? I'm like, why am I fighting it? Why would I do that? I'm just going to go with her. If she thinks I'm Susan, I'm going to be Susan right now. And it just made it, I don't know, fun, you know, and engaging because my grandmother would say stuff that I never even knew about her, you know, like experiences because she thought she was talking to whomever. And it just made things so much easier because I was not attached to her showing up in a specific way or taking responsibility for something when I know. Um, that it wasn't it, her reality was different than mine you know so yeah it, it this brought that up for me thank you
Thank you, Jane. Oh, am I next? Okay. <clears throat> I noticed that it was easy to think that my father should accept that my mother was dying and let her go. Acceptance, the last stage and all that. And it was easy to think that my mother should bless my dad on her way out. Why not? Or I could think that I should be able to help, sand off the edges of the conversation, oil the wheels. With any of these thoughts, the room became small and fearful. There was a sense of strain, of needing to change others, of the hopelessness of that task, of picking and choosing. Wanting to change myself also led to this strain. This was the with condition, with wrinkles, with delusions of control. But when I wanted no one to be different, the room was large and peaceful. It was obvious in the, why didn't I think of this before way, that important things can be. Obvious seemed good. I didn't think my mother should live longer or that it might be better if she died more quickly or more painlessly. What she was doing was good enough. I wanted my mother to have the death that was hers and saw that only she could know what that was and how my father kept her company was up to him. I could trust him to know what he must do. Sorry, this also brought up something that's happening right now. My friend has um, a cat that she's had you know for many many years it's at the end really and huh, you know it's like how do you um gently you know suggest that you let them go because she's taking this cat to the doctor and over and over and prolonging the cat's life even though the cat is not the quality of life is not the same. So how do you tell a friend that you love so much, seeing them in pain that they they need to let it go? You know, like to love their, that cat enough to let it go. How do you do that? So Jane, I'm like really I, asking for advice. <laughs> not, may I re respond to that? And I Please. don't know. So I've had two in the past um, eight years. Um, and then before that, but um, and the life of two dogs and a cat. And you, for me, nobody could tell me when to let that animal go because I knew when to let it go because I saw it in their eyes. The animal told mm. me. Okay. No more. The animals said to me in their eyes, please no more. And that's when I did it each time. I, but Nelda, when your your friend is calling and telling you, yeah, she hasn't eaten for two days. And I went and I took it to the doctor and, you know, they did the IV and they did this and they gave you. And then, you know, it's like, I, for me, I'm like, 
I don't like to see anybody suffering. And this cat is suffering. For me, the cat is suffering. And it's not mine, right? I don't, I, I cannot tell her again that maybe, you know, it's time, you know, because it's not so my place, you, but it hurts. Have you asked her with, you know, with that curiosity, how will you know when it's time for your beloved pet? Have you asked? No, secrets? no, that wasn't a question that even popped into my head because I don't know, you know, like for me, if it's at that stage and they're suffering, that's my time. I let you go. You know, I've had animals where I've had to let them go. I've had dog, cats, rabbit, hamster, you know, and so it, for me, it's easier to let them go than to see them suffer, you know? And so, and I'll deal with the pain, but again, I see her suffering and I don't, you know, I, I want to offer comfort, but I also, you know, want that animal who cannot tell you verbally, I, I want to go because if your animal is not even for two days and it's not even moving, you know what I mean? Like the cat is not even running around the house and you're, you're carrying it. It's time to go, you know, but again, that's just my belief. So I know, I know Nandia, that's why I say it's for me. And that's why I have not stepped over that line to give um, any advice, you know, so. You know, you, you could know, always you could always ask her. Do, mm -hmm. do you want Do you want to know my opinion about what? You I think do? She, she would ask me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If this is a stage that she doesn't want, so I just have to be there and support her. You know, her as she. But it also seems that that something is is called for you. In, in what you're describing, which is to hold the pain that you feel and to acknowledge the pain that you feel that, that, that you see this little creature is suffering and, and your heart hurts around that. Yeah. Yeah. We each have our journey, right? So <laughs> thank you guys. I think it's me, right? It's always us. So so I know you want to feel special. <laughs> but no, no, no. I'm not playing said, with you. I'm being playful. <laughs> I know, but when I said it's me it, in regards to reading. Oh, <laughs> yes, it's hilarious. I love it. I love it. Um, in the without condition, it seems likely that my father spoke out of love and that my mother pushed him away out of love. In a long marriage, the codes spoken by the couple might make no sense to outsiders, including their own children. My mother's apparent attack on my father could have meant I've always felt oppressed and this is my final verdict on marriage. Yet, she could just as easily have meant, I'm so sorry to be leaving you. 
I'm doing my best, but I think I can't stay. I don't want to give you false hope. And my father's cajoling might also have been saying, I'll keep you company as long as I can so that you don't need to be lonely. In that room, I did whatever came to me without thinking much about it. Mainly, I read aloud the slightly bleak, old-fashioned poets that she liked. Matthew Arnold, Thomas Hardy, some Robert Frost. I read from an old grade 10 reader, a galaxy of poems old and new. My name was written inside it in a child's script and also the name of the boy who had owned it for me. Sometimes as I read, I held her hand. It was the fag end of winter, gales set in, and winds off the great southern ocean beat against the windows, offering a kind of companionship mixed with awe that seafaring people become familiar with. I was comforted by the wind roaring in the dark and confident that as I walked, a path would appear. Everyone seemed to be free then, and the hospice room was large and kind, a peaceful place to spend a late winter afternoon. Watching gaps of light appear, <laughs> robins hop with twigs in their beaks, and then the rain bash against the windows again, the season beginning to turn. Something else about the hospice. This story in our family was that mom was often difficult. I had evidence, memories, psychotherapists and agreed with, had agreed with these memories. But after sitting in that room, not wanting anyone to be different, I didn't want anything about my life to have been different either. My sister and I started to tell each other about mom's famous outreaches. The, can you believe she did that, stories? But her hearts weren't in it. I noticed that when I remembered the stories, my body didn't. I could no longer be sure what was intended in my mo mother's actions or my father's or my own. It was easy to think that when that what had once been received as harshness could have been a step along one of affection's twisting paths. In the end, my mother defeated the expectations and the of the hospice and everyone else's expectations too. She came home and lived to see another Christmas and lived to see another Christmas. It turned out to have been an opera singer's farewell concert, a rehearsal of another farewell at a future unspecified time. Oh, is it me again? Yes. 
let's have a quick look. <laughs> the night my mother died, she was back in the hospice and I called her from California. I had no particular urgency and no sense that this phone call was more at an edge than any other. I heard her say hello very sweetly and then ask herself impatiently which end she should talk into. She sounded like the colonel in an English mystery, someone intolerant of innovations such as shirts with collars attached and telephones that didn't need to be wound up. She knew that I was on the other end, but she couldn't converse and manage the phone at the same time. This might just have been the effect of a stroke she had had many years before. Her intelligence was frustrated when her body did not understand what was being asked of it, had no, grace, no grasp of basic Tasmanian. It seemed that she was speaking into the ear end of the phone and listening to the speaking end. That is a likely explanation for the gurgles and thumps I was hearing in California. Like many human problems, it was absurd. The problem prevented me from explaining the problem to her. Oh, hell, she said, bloody thing. I never liked it. By the clatter, it was clear that she had either dropped the handset or hurled it away. I called back several times thinking she might by chance pick the receiver up right way around. But since she hadn't hung up the phone, the line was engaged. The nurse's station didn't answer. Before dawn the next morning, I heard my father's voice come across the answering machine. Mum died, John. That's all I have to say. Bye. I felt the love for him and also felt that my mother had indeed said farewell in a completely satisfactory way. So those are my examples of the with and without conditions with and without a belief about how it should be. There's nothing wrong with believing people should die a certain way. And for that matter, feeling the thrill of certainty that comes with any strong emotion, including grief. This too is life. If you don't dislike your own dislike, not picking and choosing is just present. It's not a discipline or a good thing that must be achieved. On the other hand, freedom is always interesting. When I was without what I should do and might do and could do, I just did what was obvious and was given to me. I experienced that as one of the shapes of love. <clears throat> John Cage wrote a famous piece of music called Four Minutes, 33 Seconds, in which all the notes are silent. While it, often, while it has often been performed at the piano, the score calls for any number of people playing any number of instruments. Everything else that <laughs> happens ends up being the piece, the cough, the siren coming up the avenue. You're wondering if anything is going to happen, the air conditioner, 
your memory of church in childhood, your sense of waiting for something. What is really happening is always happening now. It's always now. What happens when you think something else is happening is what is happening. Just like Peg telling me the other day that that when I'm sitting, you know, I was saying I'm somewhere else. And she said, no, no, you're not somewhere else. You're just where you are. <laughs> My mother's funeral had another fine junkish moment. My sister and I found that my parents' sound system was very old. In the funeral chapel system, neither tapes or CDs, not vinyl, vinyl, how do you say? Vinyl. Vinyl. We searched through rarely opened drawers, finding cassettes of Heightland links and other areas until we settled on a tape of a Vivaldi piece. I gave this to the funeral director, a pleasant man who had known my mother through other occasions. The idea was that as we push, pushed the button to send mom into the fire, he could, what is that, start the tape and Vivaldi could fill the chapel. So- Does it, Wait, wait, wait. Does this really happen that people, has anyone heard of this? I mean, I know about cremation and that's how, you know, my different people in my family have gone, but, but where it's a ceremony to push the button. I have never heard. Same, same a word to me. Anyone? I participated in that for um, a Buddhist friend who died. Hmm. Without Vivaldi. <laughs> okay. So... We stumbled. Oh, sorry. Through our loving, difficult readings and tiny speeches. Then the button was pushed. And as the coffin advanced solemnly into the furnace. So it's solemnly. Solemnly. Yeah. Into the furnace. Dysfunctional squawks came in. A shower of arrows out of the sound system. <laughs> the tape kept trying to play and its clicks and grindings were amplified very efficiently into the overheard speakers. The coffin was gone. We could hardly back up and try again. So that was her music. No picking and choosing. Choosing. <laughs> the director confessed that he had inserted <laughs> it's funny <laughs> perfect oh sorry wrong that he had inserted the tape wrongly <laughs> i'm contagious about that everyone has her own death and realizing this seems to allow everyone to have her own life as well mm -hmm. And just envision his mother like swearing <laughs> at that, like she did at the phone, you know? 
After my mother died, I dreamed that she was walking slowly and with some effort along a path in the country. It seemed that she could feel my gaze, yet as if she knew that this matter was for her alone, she did not turn to speak or ask anything. She met what rose up before her as a task, and now it was her task to go on foot into death. I watched her walk along that trail until she passed out of my sight. She seemed to know what she was doing. There wasn't any picking or choosing involved for either of us. This was good. What this brings up for me, and I'll, I know it's late, I just want to make this comment. One of the things it brings up for me, um, and I think it's a personality and also professional occupational hazard is to run someone else's life, right? When you're managing uh. a custody case or divorce case or whatever, you know, you just, and more and more, it's like everyone, just think back when there's ever been anyone in your life who's trying to run your life and tell you how to live it. Um, it's not, it's, it's our life. It's our path. Um, I remember, I remember when I was struggling with my son, he's now 32 in high school and talked to a therapist friend. She said, you know, once he's 18, you're not invited to give him your opinion unless he invites you to. And I've, I've held yep. to that because even if people, including me, are stumbling on our journeys, unless we ask for advice, I think it's the holding of who they are and the uh -huh. path they choose that's so important. Unless there's a present harm or danger to someone else, of course. I love how he tried to uh, show us what the koan was about with the story. It feels very different from all of the other koans we've read. It doesn't feel as koan-y. Maybe, I love this. I love your sniglet. Sorry, say that again, Jay. No, I said I love your sniglet. Kawani. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm looking up, but I don't. I'm wondering whether it really is a koan or just part of the chant. So Nandi, could you expand what why do you feel it doesn't feel like a koan? Does it feel like a koan to you? I don't have a set um 
thing about what a koan is supposed to feel like. I, I feel like each koan allows, for me, the koan is something that lets me be thoughtful and introspective and expand. And I, you know, I, and like with, I don't know, one of the first ones I did with you guys, where it was like a single line or something like that. And they said it was boring, but then it was a really profound koan. Uh, so for me, this it, it's thoughtful and it makes me think and, you know, and expand. So, yeah, I guess. And may I add, Nandia and Jay, if we had a different author, we would see another facet of the prism to this koan. I don't think koans have just like one facet. Oh, here's what it means. I think that depending on the author, depending on what element of the koan they want to bring forward, some have an overarching element, but some have very many facets that you could approach it from. You see, and I think honestly, like each of us, when we give our... Um, experience or thought to the koan that is the um a dimension of it right for each person it's going to be different and it's going to hit you differently and it's going to sit differently and when we share our experiences with it, it for me that's where the depth of it comes and depends on what I'm going through in my life it is going to hit me differently you know I could you know Two years from now, even six months from now, I read it again. And I'm like, oh my God, yes. You know, it's going to hit differently. So <laughs> I, I resonate with uh, what you have said, Jay, and also what you have said, Nelda. And I mean, uh, all of the other koans uh, we've read there was something essentially confounding in them for me. And mm. um, this koan, um, I didn't feel that at all. Mm. And uh, it felt to like fit in place immediately. And so this is part of what the not to say that it can't be expounded or that people will come at it from a, a different way or have different layers, uh, but it didn't feel so tricky. Yeah. Okay. So it's koan number two in the Blue Cliff Record, which is one of the important collections of koans. And, and it's very different, the koan itself. I'm going to read it if you'd like me to. Yes. The supreme way has no difficulty. It just re rejects discrimination. As soon as there are words spoken, this is discrimination. This is clarity. I do not remain without within clarity. Do you preserve anything? Then a monk asked, since you do not remain within clarity, what do you preserve? Joshu, who's Daozhou, said, I don't know either. The monk said, since you don't know, why do you say you are not in clarity? Joshu said, 
You've posed the question. Now you can go. So uh, that feels more Kawani. Yeah. Kim, there was a Kawan you read um, in the beginning, something about the moon. Oh, look at the, oh, count the stars. Count the stars. Look at the sky and count the stars. Count the stars, or, or, right. Or, Yes. Something like that. And it was just basic, you know, but when you sit with it, you know, it, it, it's like an onion, right? That keeps opening and opening and opening. So for me, it's like on the surface, things may look simple, but then when you sit with it, I think it can open up. Yeah. And I think this one will also, and you guys all know the Sing Ching Ming that this comes from, right? We've read that, or? Mm. I know, yeah. I don't know if we've read it, but it's stunning. I, I, it's one of my favorite chants. Page 23. So, Kim, the, does the, the mind that thinks, well, maybe this doesn't sound good, but what I wanted to say is that this con is like an invitation to get rid of the mind that thinks. So at the beginning when we read it and we sat, I was kind of anxious as opposed to other moments that I have heard of this. And while the author explains like these big events in life, like death, that you cannot pick. I was talked in the middle when you have your daily life and you have to pick uh, out of things. So this puts in proportion the, the, the whole chapter to me. But I was trying to figure out if this is like an invitation to get rid of this mind that thinks and just live like... <laughs> At least that chooses, but this has, you know, been, I'm sure this meant a lot to you because you're wondering what to do in this, you're in that situation, right? And mm -hmm. what to do, what to do, how to be. Mm -hmm. But doesn't it, it's life? It, you, this is how, you know, a view of how to live life, I think. I don't think it's trying to get forgive the mind. I don't see it that way. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kim. I see it more as do what is needed in the moment. Do what is called for. So where, where are we spending our energy? Yeah. You know, and I think we can spend a lot of energy second guessing ourselves and wondering what, rather than just being there. And trusting. Uh -huh. No judgment. This is the book, Trust in That's Mind. Uh -huh. So maybe that's your answer, Malen. Not getting rid of the mind, but trusting in mind. Knowing that you have a good foundation of practice. 
and ethical and practice that takes you to what's necessary in the moment instead of all these stories we tell ourselves. I remember when the doctors years and years ago, long before my mother actually passed away, she went to the hospital and said that she had a tumor the size of a grapefruit. And my sister and I just, you know, burst into tears and talked about her dying and so on. They thought it was cancer. It ended up being a cyst that was easily removed. She's back home in three days, you know. So it's those sorts of things. That was not being in the moment for us that was going off on these tangents of, you know, whereas if we'd said, okay, she has a tumor. Let's then right. see if it's, let's see if it's malignant and going step-by-step, step, we jumped a hundred bridges, right? We're um, great storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> Fabricators. There was a point um, before the intensive where where the where that some new some people who had just joined weren't in the the lineup to have practice discussion, but this was Jessica's job, and so I kind of like bit my tongue and didn't say anything, and then like a few minutes later the the revised schedule came out and she had realized it and it was just so nice you know where I did it in that moment, but I often don't and you know why was I even anxious about it. Uh -huh. Why couldn't I, you know, the way he, he says, I mean, that really meant a lot to me that he trusted his father would do the right thing or, but just trusting people is, um, is so important. You and know, and it seems so important in a relationship, doesn't it? But go on, Nelda. I was going to say, and even if those people hadn't been put on the list, trusting that it was going to be okay that it was gonna turn out the way it turned out and it was gonna be just fine. Yeah, or would it ruin my, you know, intensive? <laughs> I mean, that would be the other choice I would have. Like, oh, I'm so worried about them. They're not gonna be taken care of. Or I'm so worried there was a time when there was someone who needed to lie down in an intensive. They, they couldn't sit up. And I said something to Peg about it and she was completely aware of the situation and she basically said, mind your own business. I don't know what word she is, but it was absolutely right. You know, so that's been some learning for me. And I, not that I've, um, I've perfected it. But you have to do that with kids, with wife, with yourself. Someone will take care of it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. But your friend also may have a for me. No, yeah. No, I that's a long time ago. Okay. Yes. And I understood it. Thank you. Um, yeah. Good night. Bye guys. Good night. All right. Thank Bye. you, everyone. Good night.